A bit of housekeeping before we get started. This podcast is a co-production of Slate and the Appeal, a new publication about the justice system. And it's a companion to my new book, also called Charged, and available wherever you buy books. Okay, thanks for listening. Here's the show. Previously on Charged. My sister was at a party. A bunch of guys like told her, oh, we'll kill your brother. That's, that's why I had the gun on me. From that point, Terari watched his back. When he went out, he kept his gun hidden under his hoodie. Two nights later, he was waiting for a cab in the lobby of a friend's building. And just as he was about to walk out the door, an undercover cop shoved him to the ground. And he just took the gun off my hip. I just knew from there, like, I'm going to jail. I'm Emily Bazelon, and this is Charged, a true punishment story inside New York's gun court. When I got arrested that night, when I got sent to the precinct, I had to wait for certain detectives. So you got the gun cops, you got the narcotics. So at first I I got questioned by them and it was asking me about um, like certain things in the neighborhood. Tarari was afraid the cops might come at him for not telling them anything, but also very aware that any hint of snitching can be lethal on the street. And he didn't want to inform on people he knew anyway. He wasn't going to talk. So the cops moved him to a holding cell. Picture a gate, like a regular gate, like the actual little thin pieces of metal just crisscrossing each other. And to be honest, like, it's kind of like being boxed in because it's small. You got one little wooden bench. If it get crowded, it's hard to breathe because you got no window. Back at Trey's house, his mom, Valinda, found out he'd been arrested from a friend who came up to her apartment. At first, she didn't believe it. And then my son came running the house. And that's when I was like, you sure it was your brother? He said, Mom, I seen the cops grab him. They was hitting on him. I'm running to them, telling them, what are you doing? And they threw him in a van. I was pissed to the max at Terari. Belinda says this was when she first learned that Terari had a gun. And this was not her idea of her kid. He'd been talking about becoming an accountant. And he'd even signed up to take the GED later in the month. It was very shocking because he's not a child like that. So he knows better. I was really pissed. I immediately called the precinct. When I called, they haven't gotten him there yet. So I was very shooken up and everything. And then I got dressed and I said, you know what, I'm going to just go to the precinct and wait until they bring him. At the precinct, Troy was handcuffed and behind bars sitting on a bench. He looked way down the hall and saw Valinda come through the door. Seeing my mom's coming there crying. She's a single mother of three. It's me, my brother, my sister. I was supposed to be that that child that she she could gloat about, you feel me? Like, I don't know how she dealing with this, knowing that her son is locked up and he might have to do years in jail and stuff, you feel me? In my mind, I'm thinking, I ain't gonna be able to see my family in, in mad long. It's like, I hurt my mother and I hurt myself. Trari was then chained to his cellmates and taken downtown to a bigger holding cell. There was a whole world in there. 
people accused of everything from selling drugs to armed robbery. I was just keeping to myself, just, I just, like, fall asleep. Like, don't bother me, sleep on the floor. I mean, I prefer the benches, but got people, like, that just, they got attitude and they just might want to pick on you and stuff because they don't want to sit on the floor. So I avoided all the problems, just slayed on the floor and stuff. Dry spent his second night there, too. Then the next morning, they shackled him back up and put him on a bus to Rikers Island. Rikers Island is one of the dangerous, you feel me, like one of the dangerous jail facilities. I had to get myself prepared. I just don't want to be the victim when I get in there. You might think Rikers is just for people who have been sentenced to jail. But most of the people held there haven't been found guilty of anything. Like Terari, they were just waiting. You could really think of Rikers as a giant holding cell. When Terari was there, the population was around 10,000, overseen by an army of COs, corrections officers. Terari had heard the stories. Like inmates either getting beaten up badly, um, the COs getting beat up badly. There was a story where a, a kid, he had got jumped and he was just getting bullied in jail. Actually, that story was notorious. It was a big reason why everyone feared Rikers. It was the story of Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was arrested at 16, never convicted of a crime, never had a trial, but spent more than three years in one of the most violent jails in the country. Khalif Browder was arrested on suspicion of stealing a backpack. His bail was set at $3,000, but he couldn't pay it. At Rikers, he was beaten by inmates and also by corrections officers, he said. He wound up in solitary confinement for most of the time he was there. Eventually, Khalif was released when the charges against him were dismissed. But then, two years later... Khalif Browder has committed suicide. On Saturday, Khalif took his own life at his home in the Bronx. He was 22 years old. In 2010, when he was just 16, he was sent to Rikers Island. The first thing that happens when you get to Rikers is that you're thrown into a cell with dozens of other people, all of them lit with anxiety. No one quite sure what will happen next. Then you get assigned to a dorm. Terari's dorm had four rows of beds for about 30 people. And since I wasn't able to sleep because everybody going through what they're going through, so I was like, like a mental breakdown for me. I was thinking about suicide at the time because, like, I'm like, damn, like, I don't know how long I'm being here. Terari had no idea when he'd get out. The answer to that question hinged on one thing. Could he make bail? In most of America, the bail system is how we decide what happens to people once they've been charged with a crime. After that, money equals freedom. I was looking for that bail ASAP, though, you feel me? Like, y'all gotta get me out of here. Here was the bad news. Trari's bail was set at $15,000. And now, that was Valinda's problem. It really was stressful thinking about how I'm going to get him out. Because we've never been in a situation like this, so we, like, we don't just have that money offhand. Melinda had to find a bail agency. The usual agreement is that you pay them 10%, but even $1,500 was out of reach. She just paid her rent. And it would take her months to save that much money. Judges in New York often set high bail for gun possession. But there was another reason for a judge to be nervous about Terari. When I was 14, I joined the gang. That's when I joined Bloods. The Bloods. You've heard of them. One of the country's deadliest street gangs. Terari was still small in high school. We told you in episode one about how he got beaten up on the subway and decided to get a gun afterward when he was worried about going back to school. That was also the moment when he started looking for people to protect him. 
for a lot of the same reasons. That's his explanation, anyway. Pretty soon, one day at school, a couple of older students came up to him in the hallway. They were in the bloods. They was like, you you little man out here, you feel me? Like, we, we looking out for you. So I'm like, all right, it is what it is. In his neighborhood, Trari says he was the first kid his age to join the bloods. I was more active in the streets, but I didn't move, move like a criminal or nothing. I was still doing what I was supposed to do, going to school, write my music. I wasn't looking for nobody to jump, you feel me? So what did it even mean to be in the bloods? Um, but to me, I just wanted to be a part of something. Being in a gang put Terari on the knife's edge, in the eyes of the world and the law. But it was worth it to him, even if judges and politicians were blind to the reasons. You know, these gangs that we form, I think they start because of that, that sense of belonging, right? That's Kadeem Gibbs, the youth advocate. You met him in the first episode. Right, we all have a natural sense of belonging. We, we want to be a part of something, right? Like, not just as an individual, but like... You want to have camaraderie. Kadeem has thought a lot about why people like Terari join gangs and why they fight. It becomes tribal and territorial because of the lack of resourcing and poverty, right? And you set out to go gain resourcing for your group at any cost. The beefing and the territorial comes because there's other groups that literally are on the same mission and have the same objective. To Kadeem, the motive for joining a gang in a land of scarce resources, it wasn't really all that different from the reason college students join, say, a fraternity. If you took all of them off those campuses and you put them where we, in the hood, they would be doing the same thing. You know what I'm saying? If, you, if all of the bloods was on Howard campus, we would all be engineers. Okay, to be clear, the gangs still did damage. But they also came through for you when you were in trouble. And not just by intimidating people. Gangs could also provide the resources that were otherwise lacking for people like Tarari. Here's Valinda. I'm very grateful that these gentlemen stepped up and supported us in this time. What happened was this. The news got out that Tarari was in jail. And one day, two men showed up at Valinda's door with money. Valinda didn't know them. But Terari did. The bros in the hood, like, they put up money for me and stuff. They put up kitty, the bloods, you feel me? One of them in particular was pounding the streets, five or ten dollars at a time. He got love for me. So basically, when people in my neighborhood found out he was um, collecting money, they was like, um, what you doing? Yeah, I'm collecting money for Terari's bail. Y'all could just put up five dollars one, you feel me? By week's end, the bloods had raised close to half of Terari's bail. While Valinda worked on raising the rest of the bail, Terari was navigating day by day at Rikers. So we have a spot called the day room. You could sit down at the table, watch TV and stuff. When Terari told people he wrote music, they gave him paper and pen from the commissary. And, that, and that's how I stayed out of trouble, stuff just by writing. And I, sometimes I'll play cards. Terari, being Terari, made some new friends. I used to play cards with um, some Albanian guys, older guys, and... <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing is, they all had the same tattoos. You know, they got their tank tops on and stuff. They just had them stern faces. 
And I'm looking at them like, y'all look serious. Like, this is only a card game. <laughs> like, I would have looked, <laughs> yeah, y'all serious. I would have looked serious just along with y'all. And while I'm observing them, like, I'm looking at the tattoos on them. And I'm like, these look like some rough tattoos. Like, I'm like, y'all brothers? And they was like, yeah. But I'm asking them if they brothers, like, family related. They was just telling me that they was part of a mafia. And when they said that, I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, wow, playing cards with Albania Mafia members. I'm like, wow. Okay, so Rikers had its lighter moments. But it was unpredictable, too. There were these totally random moments of violence. Like one day when Terari was eating lunch. I'm just punched from behind. I'm ready to fight now. I don't care if your gang is here or nothing, you feel me? Like, I'm ready to fight, though. Um, the COs came. And they just threw us in a holding cell. Since you never knew what could happen, you had to be vigilant, especially at night. Because, like, a lot of people moving around, like, I'm moving around trying to see face, like, who am I here with? There's no comfortability. You're not in your bed. You're not around your family. It's basically like your soul saying something to you. You could, like, your soul could feel it, like, this is not my, my comfort zone. Back at home, Belinda was still short on the money for Terari's bail. But then an old family friend, connected with a soul food restaurant around the corner, asked her how much more she needed. Then he kicked in $500. And word kept spreading in the neighborhood. I mean, the whole neighborhood. People was coming to me asking, how's he doing? Is he okay? He's in my prayers. Hang in there. They call me a little nickname out there, Muffin. Hang in there, Muffin. It's going to be okay. And a lot of people was coming for it. Terari had been waiting at Rikers for almost two weeks, and now Valinda could finally bail him out. Here's what we tend to think happens next. Valinda pays the bail agent. Terari gets out of Rikers. The bail agent then makes sure that Terari comes to court for all his appearances. And that's the rock-solid way to ensure he won't flee. The only way. Because if people didn't put money down, they'd take off. That's the thinking behind our cash bail system. But when I dug into learning about bail to write my book, I found out that all these assumptions are wrong. First of all, the U.S. is one of only two countries in the world where for-profit bail is even legal. The other one is the Philippines. So there is an alternative to cash bail. Here's how it works. You ask people, politely, to come back to court. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but not much. You ask them to come back to court, you connect them with support services, and you send them reminders. Because if you do those things, almost all of them will show up. We know that because it has worked for decades in two places in the U.S., Kentucky and Washington, D.C. Sure, the state holds a small number of people in jail, when they're charged with violent crimes and there's good reason to think they pose a real danger. But for everyone else, it turns out, the best way to get them to come back to court is to ask them to come back to court. Remember, these are people who've been found guilty of nothing. Here's Kadeem. It's better to be rich and guilty, you know what I mean, than poor and innocent. You know what I mean? Like, that increases the likelihood of them actually being sentenced and transferred to a prison. I feel like we got a justice system that punishes people for being poor or for being black or both in a lot of instances. 
Last year in America, about 6 million people sat in jail because they couldn't afford to post bail. Whether someone has to pay bail is often arbitrary, even bizarre. Just recently, people have started to sue over this. Here's a bail hearing in Texas that was part of a lawsuit. You're going to hear a county judge talk to a woman who was in court that day on a minor charge of marijuana possession. And I really mean minor. She had two bottle caps worth. There's probable cause. Bond is $1,000. Are you requesting a court-appointed lawyer? I guess, sir. Give me a yes or a no. Yeah. Give me a yes or a no. Yeah. Is there something you don't understand about give me a yes, yes. or no? You're really oh, going to yell at me? I'm saying yes. You say you can't hear me. No, I didn't say that. I'd asked you a question. Well, I'm that calls trying to, for a, I, don't interrupt me. I asked a question that calls for a yes or a no. I don't expect anything but a yes or a no. Not a mm-hmm, maybe I, so, or a yeah, or anything I say, else. Yeah. Or something, I heard what you said. Your bond just went up to $2,000. I'll send a request for a lawyer to Judge Harris, Court 5. Have a seat. That hearing, like a lot of these hearings, took less than two minutes before the judge doubled bail to $2,000. If that woman is like many people in jail, she won't be able to make that payment. She and her family will stress out trying to find the money. She might lose her job or her apartment. When people are stuck in jail, they get desperate. When researchers looked at hundreds of thousands of misdemeanor cases in the greater Houston area, they found that the defendants who sat in jail because they couldn't make bail were more likely to commit a felony afterward, more likely than the people who got out. Here's what the researchers said. If the courts in Houston had let everyone who couldn't make bail just go home, the state could have prevented 4,000 new crimes. 4,000. And that's just one city. There's a word for this feature of our system— criminogenic. It means jails create more crimes. It's the rare case where we can prove cause and effect. Like how cigarettes cause cancer. That's carcinogenic. Jail is criminogenic. The more you jail people, the more criminals you produce. The money people pay to bail agents so they can get out doesn't go to a bunch of mom-and-pop shops. That's the myth on TV, with Dog the Bounty Hunter chasing down a supposed rash of bail jumpers. Some people say, oh, you're a bounty hunter, Dog. I say, no, Brad, I'm the bounty hunter, Dog. His wife is also on the show. In real life, she's the president of the Professional Bail Agents of the United States, which recently declared war on anyone threatening their profit center. You can see why. Giant multinational corporations underwrite the bonds that bail agents issue. The industry makes about $2 billion a year. On the other end, in my experience reporting, families who are supposed to get their money back from the bail companies are lucky to see a tenth of what they put down. Take Valinda. In the end, of the $1,500 she pulled together, she's going to get back 60 bucks. She doesn't know what happened to the rest of the money. It got eaten up, somehow, by the fine print. In New York City, cash bail and Rikers Island go together. One can't really exist without the other. 
For decades, Rikers has been the dumping ground for people who are waiting for their families to post bail or who can't come up with it at all. Activists have been trying to close Rikers for a long time. The answer for how to do it wasn't complicated. It started with one key thing, ending cash bail and letting a lot more people go home. The idea was to cut Rikers' population in half and then use local jails for the remaining half. Logistically, this was possible, but politically, it was tricky. You have to build those jails in someone's backyard, and no one's excited about that. Here's Mayor de Blasio in the winter of 2016, when Terrari was at Rikers. Look, I understand, obviously, that we have to make major, major changes in our correction system. And there is a certain appeal to the notion of starting over. But it's a very complicated idea. So a noble concept, but we do not have a viable pathway to that at this point. In light of the mayor's comments, the New York Times reporter on the scene called closing Rikers, quote, a fanciful proposal, somewhere on the spectrum between a hassle-free subway ride and world peace. But the activists, many of whom were formerly incarcerated, were truly determined to get rid of Rikers. It called Rikers Island the Abu Ghraib of New York. And that's what it is. It's a torture chamber. While the activists were pressuring from the outside, they needed some help from the inside, too. In every city, there's a person you go to when you have a totally gnarly problem. They know everybody. People trust them. They untangle the knots that no one else can untangle. In New York, that person was the former chief judge of the state, Jonathan Lippmann. So Judge Lippmann, one thing I noticed basically every time there's a task force or commission in New York State about criminal justice, you are in charge of it. Why is that? Uh, I frankly cannot understand why. But this was a passion of mine when I was the chief judge. I wasn't necessarily able to execute the things that I pontificated about. Uh, But I took pride in the idea of not being constrained by the shackles that an elected prosecutor has. When the Speaker of the City Council asked Judge Lippmann to chair a commission on Rikers, the activists gained a key ally on the inside. But even Lippmann wasn't sure he could pull this one off. I think it's fair to say that, that this was like turning around the battleship in port. There was no one who believed, even after the commission was appointed, that Rikers Island would be closed. So Littman calls Eric Gonzalez, who he met in episode one. He'd been running the Brooklyn DA's office since his mentor, Ken Thompson, died. Eric had already been rethinking his assumptions about bail from his early days as a prosecutor, an assistant DA, ADA for short. I never gave much thought to bail bondsmen. I never gave any thought to them because, to me, they served a critical role. Like, if you got arrested, you know— and the judge said $10,000 bill. No one has 10, I don't have $10,000 bill, right? But you could get out for 1000 But by now, Eric had seen Rikers for himself. And he was the boss, looking at the big picture. All the abuses, all the issues, all the things, right? If we were to train and teach ADAs about those kind of issues, they would be much more reluctant, I think, to then ask for bail in some of these cases. As Eric was thinking about what he could do in his own office— Judge Lippman took him to lunch. He didn't need a lot of convincing. He knew his stuff. You weren't telling anything to him that Rikers was a hellhole. I mean, so he immediately got it. His answer was, I'm with you. I'll be there. Winning Eric's support was a big deal for Judge Lippman. It was the first domino to fall. Pretty soon, Sy Vance decided to come on board. Then the DA from the Bronx. 
Suddenly, everyone seemed to wake up. The mayor's wife came out and said, this is a great idea. The New York Times came out and said, this is a great idea. While Littman worked his contacts, the activists turned up the heat. In February 2017, they crashed Bill de Blasio's State of the City speech at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Suddenly, de Blasio found that viable path. It was time for another political group hug at another press conference. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm here with Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito to make what is really a historic announcement. New York City will close the Rikers Island jail facility. It will take many years. It will I take think he went on a journey, and, you know, uh, I said I would, and I did. Uh, when the mayor uh, came out with his announcement, um, I said, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It would take years to close Rikers. They still haven't broken ground on those new jails. But the promise was there. And this time, it was to put fewer people behind bars. Politicians were discovering a whole new way of talking about criminal justice. The mass incarceration crisis did not begin in New York City, but it will end here. A few weeks later, Eric did something few DAs had ever done. He said his office would no longer ask for bail for most misdemeanors. Though not all. He was still a career prosecutor. He won a wiggle room. Two days later, Eric announced that he was running for DA— at a plaza in Bed-Stuy, encircled by a mosque, a synagogue, and a church. He was not a shoo-in. Five other candidates announced they were running. Eric raised more money than any of them, but a lot of voters didn't know who he was. Here's Judge Lippman. Being the ultimate in-the-trenches uh, uh, DA who had worked himself up through the system, uh, DA Gonzalez did not have a track record at the leadership level. Eric needed to distinguish himself. He sees this new way of talking about criminal justice. It practically became a slogan. Quote, we are never going to incarcerate ourselves to safety. Historically speaking, that's a pretty unheard of way to launch a campaign for district attorney. Prosecutors that I had seen run before always ran as, you know, law and order, tough on crime guy. And I knew I wasn't really like that. The tantalizing idea of ending the mass incarceration crisis was bubbling up. In New York especially, crime was down, way down, to a level not seen since the 1950s. Incarceration had dropped too, but not nearly as far. People were asking for more. And actually, this was happening in cities all over the country. Philadelphia, Chicago, Houston. All had growing and powerful movements for criminal justice reform. New Jersey all but eliminated cash bail across the whole state. In Brooklyn, the race for district attorney moved to the left. Rikers and Bale, the bane of New York's criminal justice reformers, were at the center of the campaign. Eric and his opponents were being pushed to out-progressive each other with their promises. You could hear it at a forum hosted by the civil rights group Color of Change. Considering 75% of people currently in Rikers Island are there because they cannot afford bail, when you address what policies you would like to implement, I'd like to specifically know what policies around bail you plan to implement to ensure that we can close Rikers Island. I think it's uh, appropriate that we start... For Terrari, sitting in Rikers, the changes getting underway were too little too late. Eric's new bail policy had no effect on people who are charged with felonies. And gun court was part of the old system, the one built on harsh punishment, on locking people up. 
even after Valinda paid the bail agency. It took like forever for them to get him home. We bailed him out and he didn't come home until days later. In all, Terari spent two weeks in jail. When he got home, it was a big relief. But it didn't last, because then Tri and his mom talked to his lawyer. And then she calls us, and she tells us, well, the least he'll do is two or three to five years. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? My son is not doing no jail. She said, well, you know, he was caught with a gun, and her whole, everything just changed. week on Charged. Drari goes to gun court. They told me they had new gun court. This is only for gun cases. Like, oh shoot. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of it's gonna be a lot of trouble in here because if there's a court for guns, that means a lot of people will be getting locked up. This episode of Charge was produced by Alvin Malath and written by me. Jack Hitt is our senior editor. Mastering by Merritt Jacob. If you want to learn more about the issues raised in this show, I have a new book out. It's also called Charged, and you can check it out wherever you buy books. Additional script editing for this episode by Vera Lynn Williams. Additional mixing by Chow Tu. Research and fact-checking by Will Reed. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Jared Holt is the editor-in-chief of Slate. Special thanks to Rob Smith, Sarah Leonard, Alice Whitwam, Jocelyn Frank, Danielle Hewitt, Lisa Larson-Walker, and the wonderful Ryan McAvoy and Doug Forbush at the Yale Broadcast Media Center. Each week, Slate Plus members get an additional episode of Charged. This week, we're talking more about bail with Insha Rachman of the Vera Institute. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can find that episode in your feeds right now. To learn more and sign up for Slate Plus, head to slate.com slash charged. <laughs>